And by the way, this is not the first time where we've seen a term woke that was previously used by many folks as a positive statement, right? And start to turned into a derisive uh, nickname by political opponents. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood at the Canadian American Business Council, and I'm joined by the one and only Professor Chris Sands of Woodrow Wilson Center. Hey, Chris, how you doing? I'm great, Scotty. Nice to see you. And, and nice to be getting back to Canusa Street for a discussion that's very current on the street. Super current. Woke versus not woke. Uh, yeah, woke versus anti-woke backlash. And and like we sometimes do on Canusa Street, Chris, we are going to tune in to an event um, I participated in this particular one. The Canadian American Business Council has a series, uh, Corporate Action on Social Justice. And we started it uh, basically when the Black Lives Matter movement started a couple of years ago. And we've continued to have some very difficult discussions that are really important. And because we're the Business Council, we bring a corporate lens. So I'm excited because we have Clint Odom, who is a member of our board of directors, and he happens to be with T-Mobile. He hosted this woke versus anti-woke backlash dialogue. And uh, and we've got some special guests. So uh, do you want to talk about the special guests or do you want me to? Sure. It's a, it's a very distinguished list. You're right. Clint Odom, who's vice president of strategic alliances and external affairs for T-Mobile, runs the series. You, of course, were involved. So... Uh, Goes without saying, your co-host of uh, Canusa Street and CEO of the Canadian American Business Council. But we also had, interestingly, Reg Monhas, who's co-founder and chief executive officer of Lapis Energy, somebody that you and I have both known for a long time, a Canadian living in Texas. We had Kevin Madden, a senior partner for the Penta Group, and also Estuardo Rodriguez, who's president and CEO of the Friends of the National Museum of the American Latino. Some of our Canadian listeners may not know that this is one of the newest museums to join the Smithsonian collection around uh, the mall here in Washington. It's it's in the planning stages. He's also, Mr. Rodriguez is also the founding principal of the Rabin Group, R-A-B-E-N-L-L-C. So very well known, uh, someone who's who's tries to bring both the corporate side and that public side, building the museum together. So great, great group of people that you brought together, Scotty. I'm excited to, for our listeners to be able to tune in. You know, the Wilson Center does an amazing job. One of our recent podcasts, you it was a dialogue with you and Ambassador David Cohen, the U.S. Ambassador to Canada. So if our listeners haven't heard that one, go back and listen, because it was fairly controversial. Actually, got a lot of ink, shall we say, at the time. Uh, the ambassador had some points to make. This one also interesting, and this one was CABC. And uh, let's have a listen. Absolutely. Welcome, everyone, to the Canadian American Business Council Corporate Action on Social Justice Series. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council, and we're honored to be here in Washington, D.C., uh, at the offices of T-Mobile. Why are we at T-Mobile? Uh, besides, we love it here. Uh, our board member, Clint Odom, uh, is with T-Mobile, and he's also the chair of this series, uh, corporate action on social justice. We've had a number of amazing dialogues over the last couple of years, 
and they're always difficult uh, and interesting and illuminating. And Clint, I'm excited for what you've put together for us today. We welcome everyone that's joined us online. We welcome people uh, in the room. And with that, over to over to the Honorable Clint Odom. Uh, my name is Clint Odom. I'm the Vice President of Strategic Alliances and External Affairs here at T-Mobile. Very pleased to bring to you today an important discussion on ESG, both uh, the principles behind it and the backlash against it. We've got three very distinguished panelists today that we're very proud to bring to you. I want to help frame our discussion here just a little bit today. Um, for those who work in the ESG field or those who have no dealings with it at all, ESG has become one of the more popular acronyms in our political lexicon. It stands for environmental, social, and governance issues. Uh, some date the creation of ESG uh, back to the earliest, earliest parts of this century, uh, but wherever you attribute its origin, there's no denying the powerful force that it exerts today in business and in the political realm, and not just in the United States, but certainly in Canada and across the globe. Uh, as a young man growing up in rural parts of Louisiana, uh, the first time I heard the word woke was in reference to making sure that I understood what part of town I was in and at what time of day. And that if I caught myself uh, in the wrong place at the wrong time, I could be in a lot of trouble and I was told to stay woke. Flat uh, uh, move forward a number of decades. Now we're seeing woke as a term, a catch-all phrase that really can stand for DE&I, it can stand for ESG, it can stand for anything that is or is described as um, progressive in its origins and, um, and left-leaning. Um, but we'll talk, and we'll talk about why that is um, in a few minutes. But what it is at its truest form is really just the consideration of non-financial factors in a corporation's decisioning. Uh, and that could be in any of the realms we talked about, the environment, social issues, or governance. So for the purposes of today's discussion, we will use the word woke and ESG somewhat interchangeably, although uh, there's a, a big difference of opinion as to whether or not that should be the case. So I'd like to start with Kevin, because Kevin, uh, I've actually heard talk about this topic before, because he was so eloquent and, uh, and thought-provoking, I thought maybe we'd bring him here today. Uh, Kevin, when you hear the word woke capitalism, uh, what does it invoke in your mind, and, and what does the term mean to you? Well, uh, thank you very much for that introduction, and by the way, thank you for having me here. It's great. It's an esteemed panel to be part of. I'm wondering what, uh, who, else, who else canceled on you that you had me here. Um, but woke you know, and, and, and like I think there's how we define it and then there's how others define it. But I think woke right now is almost a catch all for policies I don't agree with. Um, but when you look at how the, the anti wokeism has sort of driven a sector of the electorate right now and has also raised up a conversation uh, as part of our political and policy debates in the country. Um, I think it takes a you really have to do take a take a moment to learn about how it got there. And by the way, this is not the first time where we've seen a term woke that was previously, you know, used by many folks as a positive statement, right? Which is like, you know, I come from a woke part of my party, 
um, and um, and start to turned into a derisive uh, nickname by political opponents. Um, it happened. There were many people who, for years who were proud liberals uh, and ran as proud liberals and declared their uh, allegiance to the liberal wing of the Democratic Party. But it was ultimately captured and then used by critics to be sort of seen as outside the mainstream of the political of the of the political main political audience. And then you, even if you look at something as recent as um, MAGA, um, uh, make, a, make America Great Again was a sentiment that was always championed and embraced by Reaganites who were seen as the establishment inside the Republican Party. But now Democrats are using it to drive a contrast message, which is ultra MAGA Republicans who are outside the mainstream. Uh, and I think it takes a, I think you have to sort of look at how this all happened. Um, and if you look at the history, I think, of how many folks on the center right have now started to really run hard against what they perceive as woke policies. A lot of it has to do with the fact that we are going through a changing country and changing demographics. And the party uh, that they and if you, if, even if you look back at like what many Trump supporters have said, which is they want to make America great again. And when you ask them, well, when was America last great? You know, they point to the 60s or the 80s, this sort of nostalgic um, uh, focus on the past. And that is because back then political power was very different. And political power was owned by people who were less diverse and they were a lot older. If you look at government institutions, corporate institutions, they were less diverse and people were older. And so that's one of the things that they want to return to. Now, why is that? Because with changing demographics and changing politics, purchasing power and political power is now more diverse and it is younger. And they have different views on what corporate citizenship should look like in the country. And so when you think about what they're really fighting for and what wokeism is about, and the concentration of wokeism as a political or anti-wokeism as a as a sort of political cudgel, that is it. It is that they are fighting for something that they feel is slipping away, which is political power, purchasing power towards groups that don't think or are aligned politically the way they are. So when I look at your ultimate question, which is what is wokeism, it's that. It's changing demographics and it's fear and anxiety about shifting power structures, shifting power power, uh, power paradigms inside today's political movement. Thank you. And, uh, and Estrado, uh, same same question to you. And then we'll go to Scotty next. <clears throat> Thanks again for the invitation as well. Um, so much to unpack there. I, I think one of the specific angles that I have from this is my 20 years in championing the creation of an expanded telling of U.S. history on our national mall. Uh, with the opening of the African-American Museum, there were a lot of questions around additional stories that continue to go missing. Um, the National, well, the Smithsonian had documented in the late mid-90s that only 3 to 4% of all the stories uh, across the Smithsonian Museums had or reflected any diversity at all. So the founding of our nation was pretty much male and Anglo-Saxon. Um, with the opening of the African American Museum and the Native American Museum, you saw uh, an expanded view, uh, a deeper kind of look behind the curtain of, of the founding of our nation 
But then the pressure to create a National Museum of American Latino and highlight 500 years of U.S. Latino history or just U.S. history, um, first capital in the United States, uh, Santa Fe, first city, uh, St. Augustine, Florida. Um, these are all in cities that now um, reside in fairly conservative states. Uh, it's interesting to see, though, as you push forward, and, and finally, we did get approval to create the National Museum of American Latino and also the National Women's History Museum, which was approved at the same time in December of 2020. Yet, uh, the criticism and the pushback was that these museums, the Women's Museum was going to be about reproductive rights and about abortion. And the National Museum of American Latino was actually going to just be this whole open borders kind of narrative and it, it's the branding of by critics, the branding of the storytelling that really kind of ties back to this whole sentiment of woke and anti-wokeism and, and what is happening across uh, Capitol Hill when people are simply looking for greater inclusivity. Um, because I think as, as we are talking here about definitions, I mean, part of that definition is how you respond to greater inclusivity whether that's in corporate America, whether that's in your policies across Capitol Hill, uh, or even just generally in your community, as we talk about a myriad of issues, whether that's housing and affordable housing and all of that. Um, we have looked at the definitions with the clients that I, uh, I represent, um, and sadly decided not um, to use ESG but rather explain that the work is being done. However you define ESG, that's what we're doing, but we're just not calling it that because that's the environment we're in. So how do you, in your impact report, in your annual impact report, or how do you uh, lay out greater transparency around hiring, investments in community, philanthropy, um, your, your impact on, on local, uh, the environment, uh, you know, and, and what policies you support? I'll, I'll flag as a reminder for us, after the murder of George Floyd, 600 U.S. companies signed on to support the George Floyd Policing Act. There's no hesitation to do that. It was the moment they responded. Uh, and the critics, to a certain, extre to a certain extent, it's, it's interesting to me, comical to me, when you look back at uh, conservatives in supporting uh, Citizens United, they wanted corporations to have an individual identity to be able to donate. And yet, once corporations started showing their investment in, in value, in community, that's when they're like, wait, 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 you know, hold your horses. <laughs> Time to push back uh, your involvement as, you know, sharing your values uh, as, a, as a corporate citizen, right? A community member. Um, that's the balancing act now is how do you still live and breathe it without uh, skewing to or falling into these labels, right? But we also understand that the pendulum swings. Uh, at one point, Obamacare was great, and then it was terrible, and now it's like, great, it's Obamacare, right? So who, in that tug-of-war of how you define things, who's to say uh, if that definition will hold? There is a concerted effort uh, across Capitol Hill right now, and, and you'll, you will see with the Biden administration, I think the Biden administration is operating uh, with these uh, horse blinders on, and that we're just going to keep pushing ESG policy and regs, and ignore the fight that's happening out there, uh, which is very important because they're also not going to get caught up in that fight. Let Capitol Hill do that, but you you, you still have you still have those um, those on the outside, a uh, private sector who are being much more careful about that while still 
I think, trying to do their part in, in meeting those goals and expectations. So thank you. Uh, Scotty, uh, I want to commend you, first of all, for ensuring that the word woke gravitated from the U.S. political lexicon and business lexicon into the uh, debate, political debates in Canada, most recently by uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. Uh, how did you pull that off? And can you talk a little bit about how that happened? <laughs> right, right. I take full responsibility. Uh, uh, when Kevin was talking about liberal, the word liberal being um, something that Democrats weren't allowed to admit to, I was thinking about in Canada, they just had the Liberal Party convention and Hillary Clinton spoke. Uh, and so a proud liberal uh, is something that's still okay in Canada, Kevin. Actually, it might not be okay in, in uh, democratic politics here, but it's okay up there. And so I think it is interesting to look at the contrast uh, we have with our neighbor to the north. And just on that, I have to acknowledge we're joined in the room by a Canadian parliamentarian, former liberal, uh, the now the permanent representative to the UN, Patty, the Honorable Patty Tornsney, who also heads up the Interparliamentary Union. And also, just in case people don't know, we're joined by uh, the Honorable Howard Dean, uh, the former governor of Vermont who ran for president and has had a few labels attached to him in his day. Also, our board chair, Jen Sloan, our past chair, Gary Clement, our vice chair, Ellen Gagnon. So, uh, this is a heck of a group, Clint, and uh, uh, I'm really glad to be here. And I know um, just speaking about, I'll, I'll help you tee up the next uh, intervention perhaps because um, trying to navigate the vernacular, like what do you say, even personally, you know, people, I find when you're meeting somebody for the first time, sometimes there are these little signals, you know, are they one of us? Are they one of them? And so, you know, you have this little coded language that people have to figure out, are they one of them or us? And I think that's worse now than it has been in the past. And it's interesting. But somebody who is navigating that um, from a business point of view is is a Canadian CEO who happens to be sitting in Texas um, in an energy company. So I can't think of anyone better uh, who has had to navigate this, uh, Clint, than your next speaker. And I'll hand it back to you, Clint. I think that's you, my friend. Not that, sure. was good. that was a good segue, Scotty. Thank you. Um, first, thank you very much for the invitation to be part of this really interesting conversation. Scotty and I go back 20 years, uh, and it's just a pleasure to be able to uh, uh, be part of this conversation today. So thank you for that. Um, yeah, I've been in Texas since 2012. I'm, I'm Canadian by, by background. I spent uh, most of my career in the Canadian oil patch with uh, Talisman Energy, moved to Dallas in 2012. And, and uh to be honest with you, I'm still kind of, I'm, I'm a bit discombobulated today, to be honest with you. Um, we're, we live, we, we, you know, our family's here and we're maybe 20 minutes away from this Allen Premium Outlet Mall. And uh, it's a place that we've shopped all the time. And so it's uh, really close to home and it, you know, it kind of ties to this conversation in the sense that, you know, everything in, here in the U.S. gets reduced down to these political uh, battles and these these slogans and and labeling of of issues that are so complex, and we end up in these ridiculous tribal situations when there's real real issues to be sorted through. And I I'm just um trying to think about all these issues to the prism of just that feeling and uh, of uh, kind of being way too close to home for for me and my family in terms of what took place. But uh, in any event, I mean woke woke to me is just such an interesting concept. I mean. I started in this business um, in 1998. I was working as a lawyer for this energy company in Calgary called Talisman Energy. 
And uh, we ended up getting in our, ourselves, this is a long story, but we ended up getting ourselves into a project in Sudan when Sudan was still one country. And we put ourselves in a terrible situation. You know, uh, the company really hadn't looked at the, bar, the broader issues, hadn't really looked at the above ground situation other than looking at it from a kind of a pure political risk, like almost like a political risk insurance type situation. But at the time, there was no CSR. There were, there were no uh, real policies related to human rights kind of anywhere. And, and we found ourselves in real trouble. And the government of Canada put in place a, you know, a formal commission to look at the issue. Um, and, and one of the real conclusions from that report was that the company had just done a terrible job of, of just kind of looking at its operations within a bubble. And the, the directive was, you know, the company, if it's going to work in a situation like that, is going to have to look over the fence line and acknowledge its role within the broader context of where it operates and take a, take a, take a role in terms of how to address those issues, whether it should be there or not. We were there at that point. We eventually left. But, I mean, my, my, my role then switched from... Um, legal counsel to senior advisor corporate responsibility corporate social responsibility at one point it was sustainability uh, you know the, the words have changed over the last 25 years but essentially it's the same thing if you ask me it's about companies understanding the context within which they operate whether it's in the united states or whether it's overseas and acknowledging those broader social issues and and taking a position or taking a role um as much from a risk management standpoint as anything else and there's a real you know, self-interest in there in terms of, you know, what your employees think about you, them working for a company like, you know, that stands for the for the right things. You know, what do your investors think? Um, you know, what what do your political stakeholders think? What do the community stakeholders think? So at the end of the day, I've been in the woke business, I guess, for a long time. It's just called woke now, and it's just been reduced to something that's very, very simplistic, and it's disappointing. Um, I'm now CEO of a carbon capture company here in Dallas, um, before I was CEO, I was VP of External Affairs, one of the founding partners, and I had on my business card right off the start, uh, VP of ESG, and soon realized that we were working in you know projects that were active in Arkansas, Louisiana, Texas. I took ESG off the card just for the fact that it would just send all the conversations down the wrong path. Uh, when in fact, you know, you had a lot in common with with stakeholders in these communities in terms of trying to improve the environment and and uh, uh, create a new form of uh, economy for these very for these various uh, communities. So it's been interesting. A lot of it just comes down to language, but when you when you get down to the thumb, you know, down to the tax about it, it's about doing right by by the folks that you're working with, the local stakeholders, demonstrating you understand those broader issues and you want to play a role. And it's when you get down to that level, it's very, very difficult to argue, if you ask me, from, certainly from my experience. Thank you. Thank you for that, Reg. I'm, I'm sure we've all seen uh, the reports around uh, Disney Corporation and the trouble that it got in uh, with the governor of Florida. Uh, we've seen uh, Anheuser-Busch get into trouble for having a transgender um, spokesperson, basically, a, a social influencer. I thought you were going to say Clydesdale. <laughs> <laughs> not, not Clydesdale. We've actually seen in the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, some lawmakers attributing the collapse of that bank to corporate wokeism, and particularly having a diverse board of directors. So I'd like to turn the conversation a little bit to the folks who are on this call, the folks who are in the room, the folks who are going to listen to this. What happens when you wake up one morning and you find yourself the target of, of a politician who claims that your company is engaged 
in corporate wokeism because you have policies on sustainability, or you have policies on DEI, you have policies on on corporate governance. What's the practical advice that you could give to someone who is about to, who's on the precipice of falling into a horrendous public relations and potentially even uh, business uh, tragedy as a result of simply having policies that has, have variously been described as ESG? And I want to start with Estuardo, and we can go down down the line from there. Estuardo? Thanks. Um, yeah, I, I think there's a lot... Um, there's a little bit of therapy that needs to happen, right? As soon as as soon as you get called to Congress, now, number one is to, as the representative of your company, this isn't about you at all. They may be using you to demonstrate how this is out of hand, and here's another company that's that's you know, going down this left lane, and, and wokeism is tearing apart our country. But it's not about you, right? And understanding that is the first step, because then you can remove yourself from the personal attacks, it, it comes down to the data. It comes down to how the company is succeeding, how the company is valuing its customers, how the company is employing people around the country, right? What is the economic impact? Because in a debate like that, if you if you try and get into a back and forth around how they define wokeism, you're going to lose because then you're actually feeding their narrative of here's another company that's you know, fallen victim to, you know, this wave of wokeism. In the end, it comes to comes down to what is the economic impact and success of your company and how you are responding to your entire base of employees, whether they're in Texas or whether they're in New York, that diversity or just the, the broader inclusivity that drives the economic success of the company is ultimately going to be a better strategy to focus on than responding to them line by line on how you're being woke, right? That consistency of message on how we are succeeding and delivering, whether you're a telecom company that's connecting schools, families, allowing people to remote work, all of those pieces, that's real impact. That has nothing to do with the political debates that are happening in DC. That is just delivering, especially at a time when the country needs to rebuild its economic strength, uh, and global com uh, competitiveness, right? That's how I would start off. We'll go to Kevin and then Reg. So I like the two examples that you use because I think they provide probably the most crystallized version of what you can, what companies can do wrong, and then also how you can avoid some of those problems. I think let's take a look at the through line on both Anheuser Busch and Disney. I think the major through line was the lack of internal communication like people were not communicating as well about the company's values and its vision and also how all of this was attached to a business bottom line and i think that's the second part which is that there was a not a clear understanding from the head of the organization down to the folks who were in dealing with marketing um, what the what was imprinted into the DNA of the company when you thought about what's our vision, what's our values, and what do we care about communicating to our customers, and how do we communicate those to our customers? You take for example Disney. The initial mistake was that um, the CEO did not want to get involved with the political firestorm that was emerging around the particular bill 
that was then labeled by opponents that don't say gay bill. Now, when you are at Disney and you have a creator community and you are in, in, you know, located in, um, in, in, in California amongst the artist community, that is part of your bottom line, standing up and speaking out and having a voice on issues like that. You're, if you don't have that plan and you don't have um, a coordination around that, then you're ultimately going to come under intense pressure from your creator's community. So that was the mistake there. Uh, and then on, on with Bud Light, um, you know, this was something, the, the effort to, uh, to uh, work with social media influencers was not necessarily communicated across the entire leadership organization. So you put a lot of the folks that were in leadership in the position of trying to defend an action that they weren't aware of. Uh, and they were trying to defend principles that they not, weren't necessarily committed to. So as a result, that lack of communication and lack of really understanding what's in the DNA of our company, what do we care about and why, those are two huge blind spots. So I think companies, as, if you look at those two lessons, um, there's a lot to learn there about, about being proactive um, uh, and then ultimately asking yourself that question. You know, we were getting back to whether or not it's ESG or it's SP, uh, you know, uh, uh, corporate social uh, responsibility, what do you call it? You tell me what you want to call it. I don't think companies should be limited by a box that somebody says, well, tell me what your ESG strategy is. Tell me what you care about sustainability. Companies have to be very, and organizations have to be very proactive in saying, what's our vision? What are our values? How do we communicate them? Who do we want to communicate them to and how? Um, and when you start to do that, and, and I think, you know, the, the, the person who starts on day one, who's an intern to the CEO, they have a very fixed understanding of that. Then you, you avoid a lot of these problems. And I think you, it becomes a much more holistic endeavor by the entire organization when you're communicating it to your audiences. Rich, we're going to get to you on this question, but I, I thought it was interesting to point out a little something going on in Texas right now. Uh, last August, uh, Texas released a list of financial investment firms that were boycotting energy companies, quote unquote, for ESG reasons. Uh, and in March of this year, state lawmakers there introduced legislation to limit shareholders and state pension managers from investing in ESG funds. So you're actually in a pretty dangerous environment right now in, in Texas, uh, as an example. So what, what advice would you give um, it, back to the original question, to, to folks who wake up and find themselves at the center of some unwanted uh, attention or scrutiny from lawmakers or policymakers. You know, I'm not sure I can add to some, you know, the already great uh, feedback you've heard from Estuardo and, and, and Kevin. I mean, I think that uh, uh, I would agree with Estuardo that, you know, you um, as a company, you have to understand the bigger dynamics that play and and how you're being you know used within that dynamic and and do everything possible not to exacerbate that situation by making the wrong statement or playing into someone's agenda it's very easy to do uh on on either side right the last thing you want to do is just be a a, a, a proxy for someone's agenda so that that's that's really important and as Kevin said, I mean, I think really ensuring that you've got alignment within your organization and what you stand for as an organization, as a company is is really critical. And, you know, I would say, and maybe it's a bit idealistic, but, you know, if you, you do your best to have relationships with key political um, external stakeholders before something like this happens, right? So there's an understanding, hopefully, if you are a big economic player in a state, you've got relationships with 
people on both sides of the aisle and, and people understand what you're doing, why you're doing it. Uh, and you've got the ability for someone to pick up the phone and give you a heads up. And that doesn't always happen. I mean, there's there's bigger forces at play here that obviously you get swept up into. But I mean, part of it is establishing relationships and having the ability to go in and explain what you're doing as a sort of says and why you're doing it, why it's important to the organization, you know, maybe from a bottom line perspective, it may be from an employee perspective. Um, those those are really uh, critical. I mean, I think in terms of Lapis and, you know, we're, we're a pure play carbon sequestration company. And so we are all about taking CO2 that's being emitted by heavy industries and, and storing it underground. And, you know, we are basically in, in existence right now because of the, uh, the 45Q and then the subsequent IRA acceleration of the credits from $50 to $85 a ton. And, you know, we're working, our, our two major projects right now are in Arkansas and in Louisiana. Neither state are very positive and very supportive of tax benefits and, you know, U.S. government uh, kind of supported business. And certainly you'll want to get into a, a debate around climate change with anyone on the ground in these in these states. And so we've taken a tact that, you know, we're there to support our partners, which are the heavy emitters, the ammonia plants or the, the natural gas power plants or, or whomever. And it's their decision to decarbonize for for economic reasons, for for uh, reputation reasons, et cetera. And we are there to to, you know, help them achieve those goals. When we go in to talk to, you know, senators, I was in Washington a couple of weeks ago and, you know, met with senators from both Missouri, um, Arkansas, as well as Louisiana. When you frame it in that in those in, the, in that context, there's a lot of support and they understand why you're doing what you're doing. And you're not going in on an ideological kind of a, um, uh, having an ideological conversation when you when you distill it down to why you're doing what you're doing, you can have a lot more rational discussion. It's not always going to save you in the middle of a. I'm not sure that would say, would have saved Disney at the end of the day. Um, you know, lots of lots of missteps there on both sides. I'm sure. I'm not sure any of this advice would have helped them at the end of the day, but it is what it is. Thank you, Rich. Uh, Scotty, both in your role with CABC and in your role with Crestview Strategies, this is not an abstraction. This has to be something that's coming to you uh, on the regular, and if not, it will soon be. Uh, what's what's your take on this? So uh, the issues change, the, the, the kind of the threshold issues change, but the challenge remains, which, and the challenge is how do we, how, how are we permitted to talk about things? What, what vocabulary can we use? And, you know, I would ask Kevin and Estuardo, what, what are we allowed to say? What is Reg, Reg says now he helps heavy emitters before he, he took ESG off his card. He's still doing the same business. It's the same business, but, but he's, Changed it. I wonder if corporate citizenship—that used to be a word we used to use—was okay. But but Clint, it's you know, Reg talked about the horrendous shooting. The gun violence in this country um, is something that when it happens, people go to their corners, and so the the NRA raises money on you know, it's not about the guns; it's about mental health or whatever. And then the other side of the equation also tries to organize and we can't seem to have a, a common ground conversation about gun violence. We can't seem to have it about climate change. But one thing I wanted to flag, Clint, that we do have a common ground on, and I worry about this, is it's it's politically okay to be against China right now, right? I mean, we can't agree on anything else, but in the United States Congress, if you're if you're going after China, uh, everybody agrees with you. And why I worry about that is it's a big world. And 
you know, most of the population of the world is outside of North America. We sell to uh, people in China and around the world. We buy from them. We've got to figure out how to work together. 20 years ago, if you looked at the top countries, uh, top companies, uh, according to Forbes, the five of the top banks, uh, there were there were no Chinese banks. There were three Americans and uh, two others. Now, four of the top five are Chinese banks. So you think about the way the world is and how business is working and just where people live, where human beings, where our brothers and sisters live, live on this planet. Uh, I worry a little bit about, and again, I'm, this, this, is, this is maybe I'm previewing a, a future topic for us, Clint, on, because we can't agree on how to talk about anything except that we're all really worried about, about trying to even... Think about think about what happened in Ukraine with Russia, right? Uh, in the energy situation, right? For the climate activists, they said, "You see, this is why we have to get off of fossil fuels." And for the fossil fuel companies, they said, "You see, this is why we have to produce more, uh, so that we're not dependent on Russia." Uh, so there isn't a lot that we can agree on, but but I think we've got to come up with a vocabulary that that everybody is allowed to use, um, and I think we have to think about. Uh, uh, about China, and again, I, I know that's a different topic, but it's something that really does unite the Congress, um, and uh, it unites people. It, it, well, Pat, Patty's from the UN. It, it unites a lot of people in the U.S. and Canada, but it, you know, in in the United Nations, there are an awful lot of countries that either that are dependent economically or have big relationships with China. Uh, you think about Brazil and India and lots of other countries that aren't willing to condemn Russia. They're not willing to draw a distinction with China. So here in the United States and Canada, I think we have to think about the world a little differently. Um, and it's not just about our woke, anti-woke, you know, political season. Uh, it's about much bigger things. Well, well, Scotty, I'm, I'm sure your words will be taken to heart, especially by the, uh, the candidates for president <laughs> in the run from here to, uh, to the election, from, from your lips to God's ears. Governor Dean, I can't help but use this opportunity to uh, to, to identify you uh, as as a as a leading political figure in the United States and one who's got a good take on the historical arc of politics. This stuff can't seem new to you, sir. Um, do, do you have any questions for the panelists or some perspective that you can share on on your time in politics that is most most resonant with? the facts we are facing today. So, no, I agree with most of what's been said. I think Suardo was exactly right. Um, you know, this is not about the title. This is about what we're actually accomplishing. The only thing I would have a minor disagreement about it, sometimes you do have to smack the politician uh, when they are scapegoating your company just for, this, for their own position. See, the, the reason they do it is mostly uh, for their own purposes and not for uh, any larger purpose. We are far more polarized than we've ever been uh, in my time. And that really started actually when Newt Gingrich took over the speakership. This is not a new phenomenon. But I, I actually think Disney's going to come out on top in Florida uh, because I think DeSantis has overplayed his hand. Uh, there was a wonderful article in Slate that I read a few days ago that basically said, uh, Disney is used to this. They got a great deal, and the author wasn't terribly in favor of the great deal they got, uh, but they always win because in the end, you have to choose DeSantis or you have to choose whether you're going to be a good grandmother or a good parent and take your children to Disney uh, or not. And guess who's going to win that fight? Uh, grandchildren uh, versus DeSantis. 
So uh, sometimes, I mean, if I if I have a short fuse, as some of you may remember from my uh, campaign, but if I were in Texas and somebody said something about I was a woke corporation, I would I would be tempted. I wouldn't do this because I think Estuardo was fundamentally right, but I would be incredibly tempted and wait for the opportunity to say, uh, if why don't you pay more attention to the number of school children that have been killed because you're not doing anything about gun control and let us make our living like everybody else. Once you smack somebody like that, that they look, these politicians are crass and horrible and all that kind of stuff, but they're not stupid for the most part. And when you really smack the hell out of them, they're going to change the subject in a big, big hurry. And so I don't advocate that for being the first, second or third strategy. But for somebody like DeSantis, that is exactly what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's already hurt him in his presidential race. No, I that, that's that's a great observation. Um, that this is certainly not a new phenomenon. Maybe we can go back to, to the panel. Um, is is there any historical analog that that uh, you find is most similar to the to the period in which we are in? Uh, I love the fact that Eduardo pointed out that uh, you know just a few years ago we were all complaining, or many people were complaining about uh, this radical notion that corporations are people uh, to to the extent that they have freedom of speech, maybe even freedom of assembly, uh, but rights and liberties often associated with, with human beings. Um, is, is there anything uh, about, about where we find ourselves today that, that, uh, that is really instructive about how we should, how we should proceed? And, and I take the governor's uh, advice as a, as a tertiary uh, response. There might be some, some primary or secondary responses uh, and perspective and context that, that you can think of. I'm just throwing this back to the floor. Um, I, I don't know who wants to go, go first. Uh, I'll give it to, to Scott. Just a quick one, Clint. I think uh, the messenger matters also. The message matters, but the messenger matters. And so going back approximately 100 years, um, I worked for President Bill Clinton. And um, on the campaign, uh, it took a Southern governor like Bill Clinton uh, to be able to talk about welfare reform. Uh, Republicans couldn't talk about it because they would have been racist. Um, but we all know that Bill Clinton was the first black president. Um, and so he was able to talk about it. And so I think sometimes having an unusual, um, somebody that you wouldn't expect uh, coming up with a solution uh, is, is, is useful. That's the only, that's the only analog um, I can think about. I, I don't know. There may be some from your history, Kevin. Well, you know, I use this uh, anecdote uh, when I first spoke about this uh, with a group of um, GR leaders, um, but it's not new. And one of the points I, uh, one of the anecdotes I use to point out that that the debate over ESG and companies and corporate um, citizenship in the public square is not new is if you look back to the 1946 film, It's a Wonderful Life, where Mr. Potter was the banker in town fighting against the savings and loan. Um, and there, there are different views on the role of a company and corporation in this community. That was 1946. We're having those very same debates today, every single day. Um, here's the thing, too, is that I try to remind this to clients, and I remind it to the public. And I, even even if we're looking at this as, and how it's framed in a political debate in the context of elections, but this isn't going away. Um, people are voting with their dollars when it comes to whether or not they want to align with the company and their values or they want to align with the company's vision for 
their role in the community, um, how they're going to work with human capital and their investment in human capital, their investment in local policies, whether it's of uh, funding for schools. They are going to vote with their dollars. People want to be aligned with companies that have sustainable, um, uh, 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 you know, sustainable a focus on sustainability um, because they want less of an impact on the environment. Um, so the, this is really the marketplace at work. Um, and so people just have to be aware that particularly today where it used to be that, you know, you used to have to have a bullhorn standing outside of a city hall or a bullhorn. Do you remember the the the, um, the the documentary about GM in Flint, Michigan? Um, now you can take your a supercomputer out of your pocket, film something for five minutes, and with the, with one click, you can have an audience of millions. So the, people are taking the technology and using it to gain greater voice uh, and to organize other like-minded citizens inside the political process. So that part of it is going to continue to focus, I think, not only political um, organizers, but also uh, folks who work in corporate engagement. I'll just say something real quick on this, because uh, I agree with you, this is not going to go away. And I would also look at um, the advent of technology and social media and all that has also provided a even younger generation to opine, right? The younger generation, 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds who have 2 million followers on TikTok or or more, and they have opinions. Um, so before in my generation, um, you might have to wait till you could vote, right? You might have to wait a little longer until you could drive to get around and see your friends and gather and do all that, but not anymore. Um, my children remind me where I can shop and where I cannot shop. You want to go get a you know a chicken sandwich, uh, Dad? We're not going there. I mean, these these are the these are uh, this is a generation, and there's another one right behind them that is quicker, faster. Uh, they're great with bumper sticker messaging, which we all know is is what Capitol Hill sometimes needs is a quick message. Uh, and that soundbite uh, paired with some really nice music in the background uh, really does transcend and, and permeate uh, uh, different audiences. So I do think that we're going to continue to have this argument, um, but it's going to be including a younger generation that we have not seen before in, in politics. Sorry, it's funny with sharing this microphone, but just to jump in on that about your kids, I think it's kids are absolutely defining uh, what's okay or not because, you know, the kids tell the CEOs, the kids tell their parents who are politicians. Uh, Michelle Nunn, who is the CEO of CARE, a global organization, her dad was Sam Nunn, uh, you may remember from Georgia. And I'm, I'm, I might get this wrong, slightly wrong, but I think Sam Nunn is pro choice because that was the only acceptable position to be uh, for his daughter, Michelle. I think uh, when we think about um, LGBTQ plus rights, um, it might be older generations don't get it, trans conversations, they don't get it, but their kids will explain it to them. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, you still need your kids to be able to help you log on to Netflix and to work your devices at home. Uh, so I, I actually think uh, kids kids will define um, what's acceptable and politicians and corporate leaders will will come up uh, to where the where the state of play is. But I think kids actually younger people have a huge role to play in all of this, actually. Last question, and it's a bit of a doozy, and I apologize for asking it last. Hey, Reg, 
Um, before we get to my last question, I want to give you an opportunity to weigh in here. Well, I was just, I was just thinking maybe Scotty can help me out here trying to think of, you know, other situations uh, similar to what's going on here in the U.S. And I was trying to think of the Canadian experience right now. And, you know, I don't think the woke debate is nearly as charged politically in Canada as it is here in the United States. I could be wrong. But I mean, I think where Canadian companies or energy companies, certainly from from, you know, where I worked in Calgary are having a tough time is navigating the, the climate change issue and, and being caught between uh, political forces in Alberta, which are much more uh, nativist, I guess you could say, and, and the federal government the, you know, that have a, that has a different agenda. And there's a political dynamic at play there that I think the companies get caught up in. And then you, you look at the challenges that the companies are having and the pipeline companies trying to build you know, pipelines to British Columbia and dealing with First Nations and Indigenous communities and whatnot, and, and really struggling to find the right balance and, and um, trying to navigate, you know, constitutional frameworks, political frameworks, and, and, and get business done at the same time. So I don't know, Scott, if you've got a, how that compares to the experience here in the United States. Scotty? <laughs> I was trying to shake off the pitch right now. We've got some Canadians in the room that know a lot about this. It's a, yeah. it's a different conversation in Canada. People in, a, in the United States are often surprised, uh, you know, Americans think that the nicest thing they can say to Canada, which is actually an insult to Canadians, is you're just like us. And Canadians go, oh, dear God, anything <laughs> but that. But but I do think there are some similarities. There are some differences. Um, the question of immigration um, is a totally different question in Canada. It's largely, largely resolved. The question of trade, is it good or bad? Largely resolved. But there are some other questions in Canada that are different, how um, language is treated, what is happening in Quebec versus the rest of Canada, what's happening in the oil patch versus the rest of Canada. So they have their own debates. They're different than ours. And the spectrum, I think, is slightly to the left. The entire take our whole political spectrum, take theirs. It's slightly the whole thing is to the left. Um, but that having been said, they have different things. What I would say to our Canadian um colleagues is beware of anything that's bad that, that happens. There is a temptation in Canada, uh, not just in the media and, and commentators, but to say, oh, it's an American import. So remember when there was the trucker convoy and it was American style activism coming to Canada? You know what? We didn't invent all the bad stuff. Like, you know, Donald Trump didn't invent the kind of nativist isolationist. Like, look at, look at, you know, Brazil, look at leaders around the world. This is a thing that occurs. And Canada, we didn't invent all the bad stuff, and you didn't invent all the good stuff. And maple syrup is from Vermont. Oh, right, go. Howard Dean? <laughs> anyway, that's all I have on that, Clint. Thank you, Scotty. Last question. And I'm only going to ask for responses from Kevin Nestrard. Uh, I blew it. Recently, <laughs> uh, recently, um, the, the governor of a major uh, state here in the United States, uh, Governor Glenn Youngkin of Virginia, has a person in his cabinet who is ostensibly the state's diversity, equity, and inclusion officer. Uh, this gentleman was recently recorded at a military academy uh, announcing the following, that DEI is dead. DEI is a part of ESG, under the S, social uh, social um, uh, moniker. Um, what do you make of that statement? Uh, I have given it a lot of thought in my own life, but I'm very interested to, to understand what you gentlemen are. Here we are talking about changing our lexicon, 
changing our words to meet the moment. Um, what, what are the possible interpretations of the phrase DE&I is dead and, and, and do you agree? I'll, I'll go first to Kevin and then give Estuardo the last word. Well, first, I think that's a mistake. Um, I, I, I mean, I wrote, a, I wrote a memo on this right after it happened, but the George Floyd um, murder significantly changed the landscape on American um, conversation on this. Um, and President Obama said it best when he said, if you look at the people protesting, it's not all people of color. It is there are people out there who've never protested before who now recognize that the, the landscape has changed and that we're never going back to the conversation that we can only go forward. So I think it's a mistake. And I think the thing that people have to recognize when they make mistakes like this, it's because, and this is a classic uh, element of American politics, which is that factional minorities um, have always been an important part of base politics. And so when you have somebody make the mistake to say that at a group, it's because they're trying to placate that um, that minority voice inside a, inside a party base. Um, and it doesn't take into account the folks that are out there who genuinely have a vested interest in seeing their community make progress, seeing their community become greater at engagement on this on, on these type of conversations, and that they know that there's ultimately a broader benefit, no matter what color of skin you have, um, when these conversations are had and when they're successful. So it's just it's a mistake. For that, um, that's the only word I can think of really to really summarize what I think um, was happening there. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think that's someone who is who is living within uh, a fishbowl, within a fishbowl, um, listening to what they wanted to hear and what they felt uh, was going to you know, create some sort of positive reaction and embolden the direction that they see. Uh, the state going in. Uh, and the reality of Virginia is the state's not going in that direction. I think nowadays you have to realize that when in, in the 80s, you're in elementary school and they're talking about the great melting pot of America, you flash forward to today, that melting pot's really everywhere. The the increase of diversity in our schools, in our in our business, our workplace, just in our broader communities, at the local elected levels, school boards alone, in the, the increase of diversity is everywhere. So to just simply take uh, three letters, DEI, and say it's dead uh, is is failing to understand what that actually means to people, whether it's the diversity piece or the inclusion piece. Because in the end, it's still about opportunity here in the United States. It's about opportunity. And if, and if a company is looking at inclusion alone, separate from the other two, uh, that that creates opportunity. Well, then now I, now I have an equal opportunity here to be seen, to be considered, to be uh, lifted up based on my talent, based on my work and, and what I'm contributing. So I am sure that in that audience, there's likely a few folks going, uh, what, are you, what are you trying to say to me? People will take that personally and say, if something like that is dead, how does that relate to me? Does that mean I no longer have opportunity? I am no longer seen. We're going back to the 60s, the heyday of the 60s. Um, yeah, I, I think that's... Uh, an opportunity for, regardless of your left or right, um, to make sure you truly understand your audience. As many people here in D.C. will tell you, understanding your audience is the first place to begin before you even write out all that messaging. And exercising her prerogative to have the last word is the boss. Scotty, we're going to give it to you to close us out and to uh, close out the event as well. 
Oh gosh, Clint, I decline. I'm going to give you that word. I just wanted to to jump on the word melting pot that Estuardo just said because uh, to Canadian ears, so the U.S. we say melting pot as a positive because we're all coming together. In Canada, there's an important difference that they would say, which is mosaic, and it, and it's different because in a mosaic, all of the pieces are distinct, but they come together for this beautiful image. They don't all melt together. And anyway, that's just one of those little differences. Um, that, you know, again, vernacular matters, how we talk about each other, how we talk about ourselves. Anyway, but um, I decline the last word and I give it to you, my friend. Thank you. Well, uh, we're going to close out this evening's event and we're just so proud uh, to bring this to you with some of the greatest thought leaders anywhere that you'll find in this country and elsewhere. Fred, I want to start by thanking you for joining us remotely. Thank Eduardo, you. Kevin, Scotty, uh, those in attendance, and those joining us virtually. Uh, this is uh, the latest in a long running series on social justice uh, from CABC, and you will see more of this in the future. Thank you on behalf of myself and Scotty and the CABC. We are adjourned. Have a great evening. Thank you. Well, Chris, I'll turn to you to give some reaction to that because obviously I participated in it and I could have I could have had the conversation for hours and hours more. It's so interesting and so multifaceted. But what was your reaction? Well, I, I have to say it was interesting because you know, words and labels are often falsely understood across the Canada-US border. You know, I've heard Canadians talk about woke and anti-woke. Obviously, now the prime minister's talked about it. And what was great about this discussion was it unpacked a little bit what the label means, why it's used. And I think for Canadian listeners, trying to understand the the ins and outs of U.S. politics, it was a bit more nuanced than what we often get in the media. It kind of showed the depth of it and how different people reacted to it. I also thought Reg Manhas, I mean, mind you, I was partial because I knew him and I, I even remembered him from his talisman days wrestling with some of the issues. The way that he bridged ESG, about which we somewhat have a common language between Canada and the U.S., and wokeism, or sort of woke, anti-woke discussions, really kind of showed this is a very complicated area. And there's so many ins and outs, but at the bottom, it's about people feeling that they can be expressive of, of what matters to them, and companies responding to that, trying to respond to their stakeholders, respond to their customers. It's very complex, but what came through for me was that at its heart, it's about trying to work with people in both countries. And maybe maybe something we need to understand a little bit better. Um, there's a lovely line, I, I sorry to be pedantic, but there's a lovely line from uh, the French writer André Gide, where he says, don't understand me too quickly. And then <laughs> he goes through the essay, unpacks his meaning. And I think there's something too that comment in this context, we sometimes think we understand each other too quickly and we're not actually listening to what people are saying. It's such a good point you raised, Chris. And, you know, when you think about labels and words in the vernacular, there's one that comes to mind uh, that you and I have talked about for years, which is Canadians talk about the border. And when they talk about the border and they're frustrated with the United States policies, they say the border is, quote, thickening, Right. And they think that Canadians think that when they say that automatically, that's a bad thing. You wouldn't want a thick border. Americans hear that. And we think, of course, we want the strongest border possible. I mean, think about the build the wall movement. But even before before the build the wall movement, it's our last line of defense. So border thickening would be a good thing to U.S. ears. But yet, um, 
Americans want the border to be efficient for commerce. They're not saying, you know, so you're absolutely right. The the words we use and how we understand them and how we assume other people hear them uh, is awfully important. And cultural differences matter. Reference points matter. And, you know, no matter what side of the border you're on, no matter what kind of business or activity you're in, navigating the current hot political, you know, tense environment um, and knowing what words to use at the Thanksgiving dinner table or even in a corporate boardroom or at church, wherever you go or on the soccer field with your kids, whatever it is, um, you know, finding language that you can use to talk about tough issues is, uh, I mean, it's an art form, I think. You're pretty good at it, though, Chris, I will say. (laughs) Oh, well, I mean, we all try with it. And but I think it also emphasizes that we we have different experiences as Canadians and Americans. A couple of things that come to mind. I remember, you know, growing up in Detroit. Um, obviously, really, in my younger years, there there was the civil rights movement, um, and there and there were occasionally riots. And many Canadians in the 1960s and early 70s felt very alienated from the United States because that was so outside their experience, but it was very much a part of American history. And you could say it was. Our struggles with social justice, but but I think it was harder for Canadians to sort of narrow the gap and say, "Oh, we're just like you." I, I also remember after um, 9-11, uh, you'd hear people say, "Oh, Canadians, friends of mine say, oh my gosh, I couldn't believe there were soldiers in the airport and they had guns." Well, I know a lot of Americans who said, "Well, thank goodness, <laughs> you know, somebody's right. in charge," and we didn't re- have the same reaction to men in uniform um, in our airports. So it. it and maybe one other border story, which uh, you bring to mind, um, and it was interesting to hear Mr. Estuardo Rodriguez talk about this. You know, Canadians don't have the same experience of Latino Hispanic population. <clears throat> it's just not as big a community. And I think sometimes fall into a perception of the southern border of the United States and the challenges of migration there that is a little bit, um, you know, maybe a little less sophisticated and nuanced. And they they have a view of of the migrants who come across the border that's very negative, and then a view of the Americans who respond to that very much in the context is very negative. And I think maybe what this discussion underlined is that those are areas where we can listen more carefully, and maybe Canadians will understand, you know, as we did with Rocks and Roads, sometimes people coming across the border get people upset for different reasons, and it's not always racism, and it's not always uh, that certain Hispanics are like that, and we don't have that problem with Haitians or whatever it is. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think I think common humanity is the theme here, Chris, and people of goodwill hopefully can navigate the vernacular, come up with a vocabulary and talk to each other and see each other um, where we are. So, well, thank you for coming along on the ride on Canusa Street for woke versus anti-woke. I, you know, again, we could we could talk about this all day, but we probably shouldn't. We could talk about it all day, but I think the key to Canusa Street, and this is going to sound like a plug for a podcast, is that we listen on Canusa Street to both sides of issues and and everyone on the street has a voice and we want to make sure that that stays that way. Woke, anti-woke, the most important thing is that we're listening. That's exactly right. Well, great to see you as always, my friend. Thank you very much and look forward to the next opportunity to piggyback on one of your really interesting conversations and bring it to the Canusa Street. Or one of yours. And and better yet, we have them together so that, you know, we, we have all kinds of options here, which is wonderful. See you next time. <laughs> see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. 
If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.